See, there are some undertones that are kind of sifting through these two, these first three verses, because what Paul is trying to get at is that God has given you many gifts, that you're to be in community so that you reveal God, but there's things that are under that. And the first one is this, that you have been given gifts by God. That's a really important thing to say, because a lot of people say, I don't have any gifts, right? You read 1 Corinthians 12, and you're like, okay, I don't have any of those gifts for sure. And you read other passages, and you're like, I don't think I have any gifts. I don't have much to offer. I don't know what I'm bringing to the table here. Maybe you've been going to church for a while. Maybe you're just coming back to church. Maybe this is your first time going to church, but you kind of ask yourself in the context of church and maybe even other aspects of your life, you're saying, I don't really have gifts like other people. And maybe that's because no one's ever encouraged them in you. Maybe no one's ever challenged certain gifts in you. You've kind of just been able to go through life without ever really using and being challenged to use the gifts that you do in fact have. But what the passage is saying as Paul writes, is that the Father empowers gifts in everyone, which means this, you have gifts. You may not know them. You may not have a vision for how you might use the talents that God has given you, and you may need some kind of discipleship and, and encouragement and teaching to help you realize your gifts, but you have them. You have been given gifts. And the second undertone is this, your gifts are not your own. So you have gifts. God has given you gifts, whether or not you recognize them, and they're not yours. Because they've been given to you. You did not earn them. It wasn't through discipline and focus and a lot of effort that you kind of created these gifts for yourself. So you can kind of elevate yourself over other people that don't have the same gifts or maybe don't know if they have gifts. Their gifts have been given to you. If you've gotten to know me for the past year, you know that I was probably not a shy kid uh, growing up. Uh, Shy is not something that's ever been a part of my personality. But here's something you may not know. When I was growing up, I was terrified of public speaking, like terrified. You know, the idea of communicating in front of a large group of people, especially if I have to be serious. I mean, that was like, no, there's no way I'm ever going to do that. Preaching was like, no way, because I wasn't a Christian. And I was like, why would I ever want to do that? But public speaking was terrifying to me. I was, you know, being encouraged by a lot of friends that I should put my name in for for prom king when I was a senior in high school, and I didn't want to because I didn't want to speak in front of people. Seriously. Now, it's crazy if you know me, because if I see a microphone, I get excited. You know, it's like, yes, it's time to go. But see, when I was in high school, what I really wanted, the gift, the gift that I wanted to have was the gift of singing, because I wanted to be a lead worship, or not a worshiper, I wanted to be a lead singer of an emo band. You know, if in high school, for me, emo music, which means emotional music, was big. And I felt so bad because I could never hit those high notes. I don't know how they got there, but I couldn't get there. I would try so hard in my bedroom. I mean, I would really go for it. I'd crank it up so no one could hear me in the house. And I would just, I couldn't do it. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I focus and I work, I'm never going to have a voice like Brandon or like Sam or many of you that have been given a gift that is a gift of singing. I can try as hard as I want. I'm never going to get there. But I, I still sing really loud. Probably Brandon gets distracted. Actually, if you don't know this, I'm going to give you a little inside scoop on something that happened last year. So uh, one Sunday, I forgot to turn my microphone off. And uh, like, I, guys, I was going in. Like, I was going hard. And I noticed as I'm singing that Brandon's looking around like, what is that? You know, he's like, what is, like, he's like looking, he's like, is someone, like, what is happening? Is someone dying? And it was me. 
And I realized, I was like, oh man, like, and he's like, man, that first song, something was off. And I was like, yeah, I was on the first song. I mean, I felt real good about it. But those that know anything about music, it was not very good. So no matter how hard I try to have this gift, this gift has not been given to me, though I still, you know, sing and I wish I had it, but I don't have it like many of you have it. But see, the only reason I actually know that God has given me the gift of preaching or of communicating and I'm not fearful of getting in front of large crowds and and speaking publicly is because someone actually challenged this in me. Someone encouraged it and someone gave me opportunities and really pushed me forward. I never knew I had this gift, nor did I want it. But what happened was through community in God's church, people challenged it in me. And I realized that the Spirit had given me this gift and the Son had directed me to use it in the context of the church. And the Father had empowered it in me and continues to develop it in me by His Spirit and by His grace. See, I didn't earn it. I didn't just kind of craft it by really wanting to be a preacher because I did not really want to be a preacher. I realized that God had given it to me. And God has given you gifts and you didn't earn them. You didn't work really hard to create them. They're not yours. They're his, which means they're to be used for a purpose. Because if God has given you gifts that are not yours, then that means you're not supposed to hoard them. You're not supposed to keep them only for yourself and for personal gain. That's what Paul says in the next verse. Look, he says, to each, if you want to personalize it, he says, to you has been given the manifestation of the Spirit. This just means He's been given gifts, right? The Spirit is the one that gives the gifts. And so as He manifests Himself in your life, you come to realize that God has given you different gifts. They've been manifested to you by the Spirit. And it says, to each or to you has been given the manifestation of the Spirit. And I want you to say this out loud with me. For the... We're going to try it one more time. We're always a two-time church. For the... Much better, thank you. So you've been given gifts that have been manifested in you by the Spirit, and they're to be used for the common good. This is a very in phrase right now. You'll find very little disagreement if someone says that I'm working for and I'm concerned with the common good. Where you're going to find disagreement is on the answer to this question, what is the common good? See, this terminology actually developed way back with Aristotle. And then St. Paul picks it up and speaks about it in the New Testament. And it really largely remains a conversation in Christian history as it begins to be developed. St. Thomas Aquinas spends a lot of time developing and speaking about and writing about the common good. And then the reason that it's a very important and big phrase now in our Western culture is because Pope Leo XIII in the 1800s writes extensively and speaks extensively about the common good. And so for the last 150 years or so, this idea of the common good and pursuing the common good has kind of been woven into the fabric of our society and of our culture. And if you ask somebody, what is the common good? You're going to probably get one of two responses. And they're very, very different. The first one is this. The common good is working towards the collective, the good of the collective. And if the individual suffers then so be it. Because it's for the good of the whole. And so if a few suffer in the process of working towards the good of the collective, then that's a necessary evil. You have to. 
But then you have another side that says, no, 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 the common good is not being concerned with the collective at the expense of the individual. Instead, the common good is giving freedom to the individual to pursue their own happiness. And that the only thing that is common are those very basic elements that keep a society functioning. Those very basic things that create law and order so you can actually have a civilization. Those are the only things that are common and good. What seeking the common good means is opening up every opportunity for you as an individual to explore and to find your own happiness and have the freedom to do that. Isn't it interesting how different those two opinions are? One says the common good is to seek after the good of the collective at the expense of the individual. And the other says that the common good is to seek after the good of the individual at the expense of the collective. And... But the problem is neither one of these are traditional views on the common good, nor would I argue are they, in fact, correct views on the common good. Andy Crouch, who's an author and scholar, he he says this. I think this is a great definition. He says the common good is the flourishing of persons in community. It's a middle. It is the flourishing of an individual in community. Meaning, you cannot only think about the collective at the expense of the individual, and you cannot only think about the individual at the expense of the collective. You have to think about the individual in community as a part of a collective, as a part of something that is together in relationship with others. And this would make sense, especially for us as believers, if you do, in fact, trust and believe in Christ here, because we worship a God who is what? Three in one. Meaning, there are three different persons of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are one in community. And so if we are going to seek out flourishing in our own life, if we're going to seek out the common good in our own life, we're meant to do it in community. Because we are made in the image of God who is in community with himself. And so seeking after the common good is pursuing the flourishing of persons or the individual in community. And this makes sense because the only way that you can actually flourish as an individual is if those around you are flourishing alongside of you because it encourages and inspires and you need to learn and you need to engage and you need to listen to others. And you need to also begin to use the opportunities and things you have for the benefit of others so you can come together as a whole to flourish, not just simply as an individual, but as a collective The other ramification is that this, if you're going to pursue the common good, as Paul says here, if you're going to actually use your gifts for the common good, you have to do it with people that you actually know their name or you at least recognize their face. In order to pursue the common good with someone or in your life, you have to do it in the context of where the people that you're pursuing the common good alongside in community are a phone call or a drive away. This is your family. This is your work. These are your social circles. This is your neighborhood. This is your church, local organizations you're a part of, your gym, whatever it may be. The context where you are in community and you are seeking to flourish as individuals in there, that's where you're supposed to pursue the common good because there you can listen to each other. You can understand what flourishing looks like for somebody else and they can understand what it looks like for you. You can actually provide practical, immediate help and relief in the midst of what is happening in life. You see, and you know this if if you are in a relationship or if you're married, you know that seeking your good as an individual at the expense of your relationship is a very bad idea. Or 
seeking the good of the whole without ever being concerned with anything that you're feeling or processing or any needs that you have is also a bad idea. You have to seek flourishing in community with that person. You've, already, you've seen this happen actually in workspaces, right? As Google and many, many others have shifted the idea of what it looks like to go to your work environment. What have they done in order to provide an opportunity to work towards a common good of individuals in community? They've put ping pong tables and espresso machines and beanbag chairs and whatever else is happening in the context of that because they realize just putting people in cubicles is not actually going to produce flourishing in the individual's life nor for the collective. And actually, if we care about the flourishing of the individual and we care about their work environment and what that looks like and how they engage with that, not only are they going to flourish as an individual, but the company is going to flourish as well. So you have to be concerned not only with the whole, but also with yourself and with yourself and with the whole. I think there's at least five things that you need to think about um, in the context of pursuing the common good, because we can talk about this all day long. Like, what does it mean? Okay, I'm going to pursue the common good in my family. I'm going to pursue it in my work. I'm going to pursue it in my friend circle. I'm going to pursue it in my church. But I think it does at least five things. One, if you're pursuing the common good, you are seeking to maintain and uphold the dignity and worth of all persons. Meaning whether they are black or white or brown or male or female or rich or poor or strong or weak or annoying or engaging, fun, boring, lazy, hardworking, Christian, non-Christian. Doesn't matter if you're pursuing the common good in the different communities that God has placed you, you're seeking to uphold dignity and worth of all people. Secondly, you're also mindful of the vulnerable because you cannot pursue common good in community if there are people that are suffering and need more help and support in order to flourish alongside of you. You have to be mindful of the vulnerable because you're supposed to flourish alongside others, not just by yourself. Thirdly, you have to be mindful of the choices that you make. See, pursuing the common good deepens your decisions because your decision is not only about you. So you have to ask yourself, what is good for my family? What is good for my work? What is good for my coworkers? What is good for those that I'm serving? What is good for my church? What is good for my social circle and the friends that I have? Fourthly, the common good starts conversations. I think this is really important, especially now. See, a lot of times we can have the mentality because we're pursuing the common good as individuals and not as a whole, that when there's differing opinions and when there's diversity of thought, then you just need to separate yourself from those people and find like-minded people. But see, the common good recognizes that people are going to have different opinions. If we pulled the room right now and said, what is pursuing the common good in this church look like? We're going to have a lot of different thoughts. But pursuing the common good says that diversity of thought is actually an opportunity for unity and common mission. And so you engage in conversations, you listen, you learn, you begin to share so that you can come together in unity. Not just in your church, not just in your work, but in your family, in your social circles, with your friends. You flourish alongside the community as you listen and as you engage and find unity. And it may seem impossible in some arenas, but it's not if you start conversations and you actually listen. If you're looking in your work, for instance, where most of us feel like, we, how am I supposed to pursue the common good in my work? Start by looking to uphold people's dignity. Start by being mindful of those that are vulnerable. 
Start by being very thoughtful about the decisions that you make. Begin to have conversations where everybody else wants to divide. And then lastly, the common good uses the gifts that God has given you. Maybe you've been in the church for a little while. Maybe you're new. If you get our worship primer, we send out an email every weekend that kind of prepares your heart for worship. And this week, I, I gave you an opportunity to take a spiritual gifts test. Uh, it's not perfect, but it can help to illuminate maybe some of the gifts that God has given you. And what happens is this. Oftentimes when you take the test or someone tells you what different gifts you have, if you're a Christian, you think that your gifts are only to be used in the church. So if you have the gift of hospitality, you need to join the events team. If you have a gift of music, you need to join the band. If you have the gift of management and organization, you need to help organize a team that's dysfunctional. If you have the gift of mercy, you need to organize serve projects and so on. Whatever your gift is, you need to use it in the context of the church. Now, I will say, obviously, I would like that to happen. That's wonderful. You already use your gifts in the context of the church. And oftentimes, that's where you should start using your gifts. Because you cannot say that you're pursuing the common good in your church if you're not using your gifts there. However... The church should be on mission, and the church should care about people, and not only the people that are sitting in the seats, meaning you should be looking to use your gifts not only in the church, but in all the other communities that God has placed you in, in your neighborhood, in your social circles, in your family, in your work. You should be asking questions like, what does it mean for me to pursue the common good in these places? And oftentimes it does start in the church. And Paul talks about that in verse 12. He kind of explains that where he talks about what the church is to look like. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one, so it is with Christ. See, he compares the church to a body. And he says the church is one, should be united, should be together. However, the church is composed of many different functions and many different gifts. And if you've ever thought about this analogy, I was thinking about that this week. A lot of times we forget the fact that the analogy of the body is the analogy of something that moves. The body takes steps. The body moves forward. The body is active. The church is to be on mission. And so if you're using your gifts and if you're seeking the common good in your church, which means you're pursuing the flourishing of persons in community, professional flourishing, flourishing in families, prefer flourishing in relationships, flourishing spiritually, emotionally. If you're pursuing that in the context of the church, the church is moving. It's on mission. It cares for not only those that are sitting in its seats, but also those that have not joined and are a part of its larger community, its neighborhood, which means you're to be using your gifts there too. And the beauty of beginning to actually use your gifts in the church as a platform to use your gifts in other areas of your life is that the church can help develop and encourage and refine your gifts. Maybe you are the hands. You're like, you know what? One of my gifts is I just like to serve. I like to reach out to people. I like to, to kind of come alongside people when they're struggling. But you need the eye if you're the hand because sometimes you could be reaching for the wrong thing. And you need the eye to say, don't do that. That's a bad idea. But if you're the eye and you have vision and you have direction, and you have the ability to, to, to think about where we should go and what we should do, you need the feet. Because if you don't have the feet, you're never going to move. You're just going to have a lot of ideas. 
So the feet need to be able to move the church and the body and the people forward. But the feet also need the ears to be functioning properly. Because if the ears aren't functioning properly, you're going to be off balance. You're not going to listen for what's coming your way. See, the example of the body is one that we, together in the church, as we realize that God has given us gifts that are not ours, that we're to use for the common good, we're to uphold the dignity of all in our church, we're to care for and be mindful of the vulnerable, we're to start conversations with each other, we're to think about the decisions that we make. Like one decision that you can think about is, what does it mean if I don't prioritize spending time with the family of God? What's the effect on the common good of that community? What if I don't give my time, talent, and treasure to the church? What's the effect on the common good? You've got to think about your decisions, and you need to use your gifts. But it doesn't stay here. It should be a platform for you to use your gifts outside of the church. And so with all this in mind, as this is rolling around in the heads of the church in, in Corinth, and maybe it's you're processing what that looks like for you as well, Paul gives this list of gifts, and they're not exhaustive, but they're controversial. They're supernatural gifts, and they were actually controversial in the life of this church as well, because what happened was people began to say that if they had a certain gift, that it was a greater gift than other gifts, or if they didn't have a certain gift, they felt like they were not as important and not as valuable to God. Isn't it interesting that when certain gifts are elevated above other gifts by people— the people that are elevating gifts are always, they always somehow possess the gifts they're elevating, right? You know, it's like the gift of prophecy is the greatest gift, and I happen to have that gift, you know? And Paul doesn't, he wants to dispel that. He wants to take that away. He's going to deal with the gifts that they're arguing about, but he dispels it. You can see on the screen behind me is in verse 14. It's not in your bulletin. But 14 through 18 says this, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. So he's dispelling this. He says, listen. I'm going to talk about the gifts that you have argument over. But you need to realize that God has given you your gift specifically for a purpose. And no gift is more important or less important than another. He gives as he chooses because the body is to be many gifts come together in unity as you encourage and refine them in each other. So that you might not only care for the common good of the church, but also of the place that you've been planted in the other communities that you're a part of. And so he jumps in and he says in verse 8, the first one, for one is given the spirit and utterance of wisdom. This is just the gift of really having a deep understanding of the cross. Our first value as a church is that we're cross-focused. And so some people have the gift of really being able to utter wisdom, being able to communicate and to tell people what it means to trust and follow after Christ, what it means to really focus and live a life of the cross and are able to communicate that. The next one he says that some are given the utterance of knowledge according to the Spirit. And this is the ability to have spiritual discernment. Maybe you've met people before and you've had conversations with them. And you said, you know what, this is the person I'm going to go to when I need discernment. I need guidance because they rely on the Holy Spirit. And whenever they speak, they just, they say things I, I don't see. And they speak things that are true that I never saw. 
They have a gift of spiritual discernment. It says, to another, faith by the same Spirit. And this is not faith as in faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived a life you couldn't die to death you deserve and rose from the dead. It's not faith in that sense. It's faith in, in the sense that you have the faith to move mountains. And the idea here that Paul is explaining is that it's faith, supernatural faith, that God is going to be merciful and powerful when everything around you seems hopeless. You've met people like this before, maybe, where you're like, there's no way we're going to make it through. There's no way this is going to happen. And there are some people that say, no, no, God's going to be faithful. He's going to be good. He's going to be merciful. They really trust in God's presence and his power and his goodness. And then he says to, the, to another gifts of healing by one spirit and another to the working of miracles. And this is where he gets to the supernatural. And this is where the division in the church happens, right? Because we look at the early church and we recognize something. God gave a really incredible measure of these supernatural gifts in the first few hundred years in the birth of the church. As the church goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, and with the first few hundred years, Christianity changes the course of history and starts with just a few disciples in Jerusalem and becomes the predominant religion in the world after the first few hundred years. And God in many ways, expanded his church by empowering the apostles and other leaders with the gifts of healing and of working miracles. Because you have to remember, this is a very interesting time in the history of the church. They didn't have the New Testament like we have it. The Bible as we know it was not formalized. It was being written by guys like Paul and Peter and John. And so they were trusting in faith as maybe they had a letter or maybe they had one gospel or a part of a gospel. Maybe a church that was really lucky had a couple books. There was widespread consensus on what was scripture and what wasn't, but there was no printing press. And so God grew his church by giving a really deep measure of supernatural gifts like healing and miracles. But he communicated to his church in supernatural ways as well. The next says just that. He says that to another, the gifts of prophecy... And another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. You see, prophecy is inspired speech by the spirit. And the ability to distinguish between spirits is someone that has the ability to interpret and analyze prophecy and say whether or not it's actually true, whether or not it's actually correct, because there were false prophets circulating in the early church. See, these gifts and others, as we're going to mention in a moment, the gift of tongues specifically, this divides the church, right? Some people say these gifts still exist in the exact same way as they did in the early church. And some people say these gifts have ceased. They're done. When the New Testament was formed, they were no longer necessary. And so we have other gifts now. And the question that I want to pose is maybe it's neither one of those. Maybe the gifts of prophecy are not identical to the gifts of prophecy in the early church because we do know that Revelation tells us that you're not to add or remove a word from Scripture because it's complete. It's the infallible and inerrant word of God. We do, in fact, believe that it's God's word to us. And so how can you add to it prophetically? But maybe it's not identical, but maybe it's analogous. So maybe what prophecy looks like now is that some people actually have the gift of intuitive speech. Maybe there are sermons or conversations you've had 
with a friend or with a pastor or with a family member where someone spoke to you in a way that it was exactly what God needed to say to you. It was subordinate to Scripture. It wasn't adding or removing Scripture, but they said something to you. They had a word for you that was exactly what God wanted to say to you. It was prophetic in many ways in your life. Maybe we, I think we would all admit and we would say that God does still heal and maybe God does use people powerfully in different ways to, as they lay hands and they, they speak healing over people to bring healing in, in their life. Looks different, I think, than it did in the early church, but maybe it's analogous. And then you have the most controversial of all, the gift of tongues, where it says some were given various kinds of tongues and other the interpretation of tongues. And this was controversial in the early church too. See, it says here that there were various kinds of tongues, which means that there were probably people that spoke in tongues that were uh, inspired and some that weren't inspired. And what the gift of tongues is, it's, it's spirit-inspired speech that's not intelligible. You, you can't understand it. And so Paul actually doesn't go down the rabbit hole of, dis- of distinguishing what's inspired and not inspired. He's only actually concerned with the common good of the church. And that's why he says this. If you have the gift of tongues, you should only speak if there's an interpreter because it's not beneficial. It's not good for the church to hear you speak and not know what you're saying. And sometimes we can get wrapped up in thinking that speaking in tongues means that you have this kind of euphoric, ecstatic experience. But actually, in the early church, if you had the gift of tongues, you waited your turn to speak until the interpreter was ready. And Paul actually says, if there's no interpreter, you're supposed to remain silent. Because it's to be used for the building up of the church. And so maybe the gift of tongues isn't identical to the way that it was used in the early church. You didn't have scripture as we know it. And God communicated in very supernatural ways. But maybe it's analogous. Maybe God does speak through some people. And, but maybe that there are restraints that we should remember that Paul gives us. As we understand what it looks like to bring that gift in the context of the church that there should be someone who has an interpreter. As Paul says, if you don't know anyone, you should pray for interpretation because it's supposed to be building up of the church, not tearing it down. And then he says, with all of these gifts in mind, whether they're supernatural or any other gift that God has given you, he closes and he says, they've been empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions each one to you individually as he wills. So here's what Paul says to you. What he says to us as he's been inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says that the Spirit has given you gifts and they're not yours. You didn't earn them and you have them even if you don't recognize them. And the Son will direct you how to use them and the Father will empower and develop them in you. And they are not to be used simply for your gain and for personal good. They're to be used for the common good in the life of the church as you give and your gifts over for God to use them here in this community so that you may flourish and the community may flourish but also in all the other communities that God has placed you in as well. And so the question I have is, are you doing that? Are you using them? Do you recognize them? Because God didn't make a mistake with you. He gave you very specific gifts to be used. The Holy Spirit is compared to fire, often in Scripture. And fire protects, fire cleanses and purifies, fire warms, but fire also illuminates. And I have two prayers that you would ask yourself these questions. The first is, if you don't know the gifts that God has given you, will you take time to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate like fire the gifts that God has given you? Will you seek out people in this church to ask them, hey, will you help me identify the gifts that I have?
because I know God's given me gifts and I want to use them. And then if you know what your gifts are, are you using them for the common good? Are you using them for the common good here, in your work, in your social circles, in your family, in your neighborhood? Because that's the command and that's the charge to all of us. Let's pray.